0: you know as as Jonathan keeps saying it it, it is it is good to be here um, and and I, and I count it a privilege and a joy and I hope we all do I hope we all count it a privilege and a joy to be able to do what we do to have the freedoms right now to do what we do obviously um, you know from a national standpoint but But from a spiritual standpoint, thank you. You're really long stroll. But it's good to be here, good to see you. Be a course in Mark 14, 43 to 52. Mark 14, 43 to 52. And as I mentioned last week, we're kind of launching into a series called Places of the Passion. Places of the Passion. So we're just kind of going around that little circle. Start in the garden and wind around up at the tomb. And, and of course, we were in the garden last week and we're, we're in the garden this week. This is just in the garden number two. You know, last week, of course, Jesus was praying, he was surrendered. This week, we're in the garden and. Um, We see that, of course, he is sold out. He is sold out. And there are just uh, just a few things to hit on as we look at, at Jesus being in the garden and getting ready to leave the garden. Of course, we know there's conspiracy. And we know there's some confrontation in the garden and we know there's some cleaving, and it's maybe a different kind of cleaving than you, you think about. And, and there's also some compromise. So we have conspiracy, confrontation, cleaving, compromise here in the garden. Well, I want to start out with this. I, I just um, I pulled up a quote and, and some, some dates and things. I, I want to share this with you. December 8th, 1941... I know we all remember that. 1941 was a long time ago, for those of you who weren't paying attention. But Pre- President Roosevelt said this. He said, Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy, the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. Now we know, of course, that was the catalyst that, that propelled us into World War II. But, but I... You know, I look at that word infamous because the word infamous means to have a very bad reputation, okay, to have a strongly bad inf- reputation. And, and let me give you some more infamous dates. Some of these, you probably know all of these, October 29th, 1929, of course, stock market crash and ushered in the Great Depression. November 22nd, 1963, JFK assassinated. April 4th of 68, Martin Luther King assassinated. January 22nd, 1973, Roe versus Wade ushered in a horrific age of murder. And, and probably, probably the, the most, at least in everyone's here's mind, the, the, the most infamous date that we can all identify with, September 11th, 2001. Of course, when um, this terrorist... Decide to attack us on our soil. So you know we we think these dates that live in infamy. But but then I also think about you know people who who kind of live in infamy, all right, Um, you know, traitors and betrayers and those types of people. But let me let me just I just want to share a few that you may or may not know about. Just and, and these are these are prominent. Betrayers, prominent traitors throughout history. But uh, Ephialtes, everybody knows Ephialtes, right? He was, he was the guy who, at the Battle of Thermopylae, he, he betrayed the Greeks and Leonidas and the Spartans. Remember the Spartans? Okay, They were holding that narrow pass. He's the one, he was like a shepherd guy, and he showed the enemy a back way around to be able to flank um, the Greeks, Ephialtes. Um, Wang Jingwei, Everybody know him? I'll tell you, I, I some of these are kind of obscure, but if you're in China, Wang Jingwei is synonymous with traitor. He was he an was a, a infamous Chinese traitor and leader. Vidkun Quisling was a same thing in Norway. He was, a, he was a Norwegian traitor and a Nazi collaborator. And again, he was trying to further his own means. Mir Jafar. Was a was a ruler in Bengal who was pretty much single-handedly uh, responsible for bringing British rule to India. That was that was him. We probably we probably all remember maybe some of the modern day traders, American ones at least. You know, Robert Hansen, maybe not who he is. Aldrich Ames, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, John Walker Jr. I had to put this one on because. I, I think she was. I, I put Jane Fonda on the list. Because man, you go you go back to Vietnam era and Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Man, you you talked to anybody from that era and say, Yes, man, she she betrayed her country. Now of course we have the famous traitors, okay, the famous, infamous people. You got you gotta go back to Brutus, okay, helped kill his Uncle Caesar. All right. Mata Hari, you know that that famous World War One spy. Tokyo Rose, depending on how you read, I mean, you know, was she coerced or was she an actual World War II traitor? You know, she spread propaganda, I don't know. Um, guy Fawkes, he's the guy. <laughs> he's the guy who tried to blow, he wanted to blow up parliament, you know, with all the people in it. He was leading the rebellion. Um, and just like, you know, Wang Jingwei is synonymous in China with traitor. We know that when you say Benedict Arnold, it, it just, yeah, I mean, it's synonymous with traitor, with the word traitor. So Benedict Arnold. Um, but, you know, especially in, in religious circles, when, when, you say, when you think traitor, who, who do you think? We think of, of course, Judas Iscariot. And, you know, he comes up number one on the list. And I mention that because, you know, we, we get a little more, or at least the, the, the final prominent act of this infamous betrayer, and this important date in history. And, and the text that, that we're in, we're in 43 to 52, you know, it, it shows us you know, his, his dark deed, and, and some other dark deeds that follow. And some other things that follow. I understand that he's the one who sold out the Savior. So Mark 14, 43 and go through 52. Let me just read the text and then we'll, we'll go forward. It says, Immediately while he was still speaking, this was Jesus, Judas, one of the twelve, came up, accompanied by a crowd with swords and clubs who were from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now he who was betraying him had given them a signal, saying, Whoever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him, lead him away under guard. After coming, Jesus, I mean, Judas immediately went up to him, saying, Rabbi, and kissed him they laid hands on him seized him but one of those who stood by drew his sword struck the slave of the high priest cut off his ear jesus said to them have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber every day i was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me but this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures they all left him and fled a young man was following him wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body they seized him but he's pulled free of the linen sheep and escaped naked. So the first thing we see is, of course, we see the conspiracy. We see the conspiracy. And I just put up there you know, Judas, the stealer. Because we know, you know from John 12, 6, that you know, he had his hand in the till. Right? He had his hand in the money bag. And we know that Jesus, Judas thought, man, I can't switch. Kids. It's not good to switch those around. You have to be careful when you say that differentiate between Judas and Jesus but Judas thought that Jesus was there to overthrow Rome with this new kingdom and we know that Judas probably was looking for status and wealth and power and influence and when he didn't get that he basically took what he could get from the religious leaders now Judas since he was on the inner circle what do you know he he knew Jesus's you know where he spent time, what he did. He knew where he liked to go to get away. So you know, Judas knew about the garden, of course. And he said, you know, look, we need to come late at night. And you know, the religious leaders, I'm sure they all conspired that we, Yeah, we need to grab him late at night to cause less of a commotion with this arrest. You know, so, so we need to come at night. We need to arrest him then. There's not going to be crowds around. Isn't it true that... Oftentimes you know, the, the darkest deeds are done when there's no light, when it's night. But says he led the soldiers there. So he took them to the garden. Now the soldiers, we understand, were a mix of Jews and Romans. Alright? They're mixed. And, and they thought there'd be a fight. So they, they came armed to the teeth. Says they had swords and clubs. We had soldiers with swords. And we had the temple police with their clubs. And it says the temple police had their clubs. Remember, we talked a little bit last week. I was kind of joking about, you know, the temple guys there. And somebody had to have some sort of weapon because they were killing people who crossed thresholds. So we got the temple police with their clubs. The, you know, they, they were in collusion with, uh, in fact, the Sanhedrin was partnering with the governor government. And said, hey, I need some troops. We've got to go arrest this guy. And so they come with a contingent of troops. which is kind of entertaining in itself, because you know, it was just Jesus and 11 other guys. And, and we understand that there were probably dozens of troops. It wasn't just Judas and a couple of religious leaders and you know, two or three guys with weapons. Now we, we get the idea that there was a contingent, an armed contingent marching out and saying, okay, we're going to grab him, and we're going to squelch whatever this is that's going on. And we, we know that Judas offered to identify Jesus. And, and he said, okay, I'm going to give you a signal. And the signal is going to be, I'm going to kiss him. In fact, I think there's some, I think there's some group a long, long time ago that did a song called Judas's Kiss, wasn't there? Yeah. And I mean, it was, it was an interesting song. It was very poignant. But um, we know that in greetings, there are there different kinds of kisses. You, you could kiss a hand or, you know, um, people kiss feet or... Or whatever else, but a kiss on the cheek, which is what this was, was was the kind that, that showed the the most respect and, and the deepest amount of affection all right so it it wasn't just a you know like kiss your hand or you know just like, like you know the Europeans do like you kiss in the air, you got a face here and mmm, I'm going to kiss you over here. I, I never understood that no I mean it was a, it was a kiss on the cheek, and in some people would even say it was it was a few kisses. just showing the deepest respect and affection. And of course, the whole intent was just to identify Jesus. Just identify Jesus. But here's what happens, which is kind of interesting. When we combine texts, combine gospels, we we understand that Jesus confronts everyone, which I just love. So we see the confrontation, and the first thing we see is is his name is recognized, because he says, I am. John 18 adds this, and I love this passage. John 18, 4 through 8, John puts this, it says, so Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, he went forth and said to them, whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. He said to them, I am he. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. So when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Therefore he again asked them, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus answered, I told you, in case you missed it the first time, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these go their way. I love the fact that, that and I get the idea of maybe you know, Judas comes forward and he kisses him and he kind of steps back. You know, he's his rabbi and he kind of steps back you know, to the safety of his crowd. And before Judas can say anything and before anybody else can do anything, Jesus says, who, who are you here for? And, and I love the fact that John adds that they, they, they kind of backed up and then they fell down. They fell down, but remember, Jesus wasn't some some kind of mealy-mouthed speaker. He spoke with power and authority. He spoke with power and authority, and I love the picture we get here because when when the I Am proclaims who He is, it, it causes people to drop back and to fall down, and and he wasn't you know necessarily trying to you know exert any kind of power or authority he was just proclaiming who he was and i think his natural authority just flowed through that and it, it took them aback and maybe you know we have to think that they weren't expecting that i mean they're, they're there with i don't know 20 30 40 guys and they're saying, man, we're, we're armed, we're here in force, we, we got these guys outnumbered, we're going to overpower them, and G, you know, Jesus comes up, does a kiss, and steps back, and Jesus just steps up, says, who do you see, why are you here? It, it probably sort of messed with them a little bit. They, they weren't expecting that kind of response. They, they, you know, they probably expect, expected, well, some of them probably expected some sort of fight, some ex, were probably expecting, you know, oh, I'm, I'm afraid, here, you know, just lock me up. He confronts them. He says, "I am He." And he tells them again, "I, I told you, it's me. Uh, you're looking for me. I'm here. What do you want?" And then I love the fact that he rebukes their methodology. He he confronts them and gets on them for the way they're coming. He says, "Look, I'm not a rebel. This isn't necessary." You don't understand. You know, he's saying, look, what's with this excessive display of armed force? Why is that? Why do you approach me like I'm someone who's leading an uprising? And I think he kind of questions their courage because he says, look, you could have you seized me at any time. I was in the temple every day. You could have seized me any of those times, but you're coming out here with swords and clubs like I'm some sort of common criminal? He says, "Look, you you know who I am. I've been in the temple. I'm a known rabbi. I've kind of baffled people with, you know, the, my my simica, but I've I've been a known rabbi. I've been around. I've been here all week, folks. You could have grabbed me any time. I've been teaching. I haven't been rabble-rousing. I haven't been stirring up a crowd to rebellion." He says, "I've been in the temple. Teaching, day after day. He said, but I understand this is all to fulfill Scripture. In fact, I think I put some up there. But, but I, I, I love Jesus' boldness and His courage and His authority because He just steps up and He says, I am. Now what do you want to do? And I, I just think, I think, kind of surprise him. Well, okay. Now Peter, and this surprises all, he, he can't take it anymore. He just, he, poor Peter. He just can't take it anymore. So we get to the cleaving. Now you need to understand, in the Bible there's two types of cleaving. Okay? And it's important to understand, because it's not cleaving like Peter came up and gave Malchus a hug. All right, that's cleaving kind of, you know, the cleaving first kind is, of course, the leave and cleave that we read about with husbands and wives. And they're cleaving, they're holding on, they're holding fast, they're like glue to each other. That's cleaving one. This is cleaving two. And I was going to give you all the, all the, all the, you know, Hebrew words and stuff, but now, you, you know, go look them up if you want to know them. It's like abak and adak and, and all these other words, and there's some similarities. But this is cleaving, too, where something gets cut off. And it's used throughout the Bible in different ways when you know, people are cutting things or cutting sacrifices in half or whatever. There's some cleaving going on. Well, Peter, he's got his sword, and we know he's, he's got a little bit of a temper. Peter, Peter tends to react. We know that. He speaks lots of times without thinking. He acts sometimes without thinking. And so he jumps out, you know, he gets mad and he hurts poor Malchus. John 18.10 is the one who, who gives us the guy's name. It says, Simon Peter then, having a sword. I don't know who gave Peter a sword. I'm not sure that was a good plan. Yeah, you know, I'm thinking somebody, I don't know, maybe Andrew. Andrew would have been a good one to have a sword because he wouldn't be just, you know, oh, I'm upset, I'm going to pull out my sword. I don't know. I, I don't think that was wise. But he, So he drew a sword, struck the high priest's slave, cut off his right ear, and the slave's name was Malchus. So know that Malchus was Caiaphas' servant. All right, we, we understand that. Well, you know, Peter was feisty. He wasn't, we just understand. He wasn't about to let this crowd arrest Jesus without some kind of fight. I mean, you know, he's the reason, or that response is the reason, that we had... Dozens of guys with clubs and swords out there. and I don't know, maybe Judas kind of clued him and said, look, I don't know if we're getting to from Jesus, but we, Peter, you got to watch him, because I don't know. I don't know what he'll do. But, but we understand, man, Peter jumps out, no, this is not going to happen. Remember, Peter's the one who says, no, you, you're not going to go to the cross. No, you're not going to die. No, I'm not going to let you do that. He's been saying multiple things like that, so... Of course, Peter jumps out and phew, takes off poor Malchus's ear. He had good intentions. He did. He had good intentions, just poor execution. I had a good friend who used to say, I mean, and he used to saying all the time, because we, you know, we worked with the government, um, and so you just had to. But he said, help unasked for is interference, which you know, can, can often be true. You can have great intentions and just poor execution. That's Peter, man. Great intentions. What did he want to do? He wanted to protect. He wanted to help. All right. He wanted to help Jesus. You can't fault him for that. Just poor execution. I mean, it was, it was basically the wrong thing at the wrong time. Because what was Peter doing? He was, he was just acting emotionally. He said, oh, no, this is not going to happen. I'm going to get my sword. You're the closest guy. I don't know, maybe, he was, maybe he was going for Caiaphas and you know, Malchus got in the way. I, I don't know. Wrong thing, wrong time. Thankfully, Jesus comes along and, and he makes it right. And he does it not just simply to help Malchus. In fact, I think I put up the divine touch and the master heals. And Luke twenty two fifty one 51 gives us the specifics of malchus getting healed says but jesus answered and said stop no more of this and he touched his malchus's ear and healed him jesus says stop no we're not doing this it's not going this way for a few reasons jesus could count and he knew that there were only maybe two or three swords on their side and he knew that there were lots of swords and clubs and trained soldiers on the other side. And he didn't want to see his disciples slaughtered. So one of the reasons, and, you know, in John's account, he steps forward, look, I'm, I'm the one you're looking for, just don't bother these guys. So when Peter takes off Malchus's ear, he says, no, no, stop, we're not doing this, that's enough. And, you know, I don't know if he just reached out and, and you know, grew another ear on Malchus or if he picked the ear up and stuck it on. You know, we don't get those details, but we know that Malchus left with an, an ear, um, a right ear, you know, in the right place, because that's the way Jesus works. He says, look, we're, we're not doing it this way. And how that didn't blow away the soldiers and, and the guys, I don't know. I mean, it's not like they see that all the time. I mean, sure, they've seen stuff cut off. They've never seen anybody get something cut off and somebody reach down, pick it up, and put it back on. It just didn't happen. Sometimes I get frustrated that we don't get the rest of the details. Because I would have loved to have gotten an account of soldier number three who was next to Malchus and saw the air come off and got splattered, you know, with some stuff. And, you know, Malchus is, ah, and... I don't know if he would, but if I had my ear cut off, i go, ah! Um, but I'd love to have soldier number three's account because, you know, Jesus says, Stop. He picks up the ear or he just reaches over. He didn't need to pick up the ear. I know that. And he probably didn't because it was dirty that would have been infected and that would have been bad. So, you know, but he just reaches over and he touched Malchus's head and an ear grows there. Soldier number three has to be blown away. He's like, Just oh, see that? There's an ear on the ground, ear on his head. It's I would love to have more of that. We don't need it. I understand that. I'm not stupid. We don't need it. It's not prevalent, but I just think it'd be interesting. But we know Peter ultimately didn't, Peter didn't understand the Father's plan. I mean, we understand that. None of the disciples got it. I gotta take this thing off. It's just bothering the snot out of me. None of the disciples got it. They didn't understand you know, what the master's plan was. They thought they kind of had some clues periodically, but, but they didn't get it. And you know, Jesus continually tried to portray from what the plan was about. And in this case, look, he's essentially saying, it's not going to be advanced with swords. That's not how this is going to play out. We're not going to get there swords we're going to get there with 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 obedience and we're going to get there with faith w- without compromise I, I can't compromise what i'm about so we get this exciting confrontation and this authoritative confrontation and probably surprising confrontation especially in the eyes of everyone else because we don't know what these other guys have been told, we didn't. We know we don't know if maybe um, you know Sanhedrin said, "Look, this guy's dangerous. You need lots of men because they're, they're going to attack you, and it's going to be. It's there's, there's going to be a battle, so you need lots of men." We don't know if they were primed that way. And it's interesting too. Again, we're talking about trained soldiers. Peter takes off Malchus's ear. Before anyone else can act, and these are guys who are used to acting when, when they see a comrade attack. I mean, they're used to getting their weapons out and going after them. Before, they can do anything. I, I love, once again, the fact Jesus exercises his authority, and he says, stop. And again, we don't know if there were people in, in you know, mid-draw or mid-swing or whatever else, but we know that the I am carries authority. So if he says stop, whatever was going on, it just has to stop. He says, look, my father's plan is going to be advanced through obedience and through faith. And we're not going to compromise. We're not going to conflict with the plan. So we have this confrontation. And then, then we just really close out this passage with this idea of compromise. This idea of compromise, and it says the faithful. What did they do? Fled from the crowd. Fled from the crowd. Of course, that was disciples. But verse fifty says they all left him and fled. They all left him and fled. And the idea is not just, you know, they they looked at Jesus and turned and just kind of strolled away. Now when it says fled, the language implies they bolted, they hoofed it. They they saw what was going on and boom. I mean, there were dust trails. They were moving rapidly away from the scene. You see, Judas's kiss marked a turning point for the disciples. Right? It was a pivotal turning point for them. You know, it, 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 here was their teacher who demonstrated his authority in the temple and, and what was happening? He was under arrest and not, and not you know, engaging in some sort of fight or resistance. So he, he was exhibiting authority but now, now he's under arrest? How does that work? And, and their treasurer, well it turns out he's a traitor and this garden sanctuary, it's not even safe anymore. So Judas kissed him. We get this brief exchange, brief, exciting exchange. But Jesus makes it clear he, he's not going to resist. And we've got we to think, man, the, the disciples, the, the, perhaps their loyalty, but, but at least their confidence was, man, it was, it was shattered. They were devastated. So what did they do? They, they fled. They ran away. They, um, in fact, language says to abandon someone, to seek safety by flight, to vanish. They got away quickly. Because we don't know if the Sanhedrin, those people, were honoring Jesus' request. He says, look, take me, but leave them. I mean, my, my gut reaction is, no, they wanted everybody they could get who was part of this crowd. I think they wanted to round them all up. And so that's why they fled. And maybe when, when Jesus said, stop, it did it. it. kind of kind of froze them in the tracks for a moment. And the disciples they freaked out. They fled. And of course, we, we look at that and we say, okay, well, well, their primary loyalty, their primary loyalty to, to their master, it should have kept them from bolting. You know, I, I think, you know, we look at that and we think. Man, that that was still where they were, that was their loyalty, that was their master, their teacher, their close friend. But I I think all these other things, and especially fear, took its toll on them. I think they just started operating out of fear. And and no one, not even Peter, and we know this, stayed with Jesus. And the best that anybody did was just follow at a distance. I mean, we know, know from Peter's Denial, or was he? he? He was following at a distance. He was still kind of keeping tabs on him, and we think, you know, John might have been with him. So they were kind of following and, and keeping an eye on him, but they were still at a distance. And then Mark gives us this, this other guy, the follower who is, who is freed from his clothes. All right? Mark. Mark's the only one who, who records this. Now, most people believe that it, that it was John Mark. John Mark's dad is the house where, again, we think this Last Supper was taking place. And, and here's what some people think really could have happened with John Mark. Because he wasn't, you know, obviously he wasn't in the garden, wasn't one of the twelve. And, you know, really what could have happened, he, he got home, went to bed, and lots of times, you know, they, they just wore like a, a really loose linen sleeping garment, garment. And it could be that that a a servant came and roused him because, you know, heard what was going on. So, oh, man, I don't know what the commotion is, but I, you know, I've heard that that maybe they're, they're, they've arrested Jesus or they're going to arrest Jesus. I don't know, there was a crowd and there's stuff going on. So, you know, we could see, we could see John Mark just jumping up and bolting out without putting anything else on to see what was going on and find out what what was going on with Jesus. And maybe falling to see what happened or, or getting too close to the, the soldiers in the crowd. And we can see someone maybe recognizing him or, or, you know, a guy in just his sleeping clothes wandering around, you know, really, really early in the morning would attract some attention. We don't know, but, but we know that, that Scripture as he was seized. They tried to grab him. says they seized him, but he pulled free. All right? He wrestled free. Left his sleeping garb behind. I mean he wasn't he, he wasn't gonna he wasn't gonna go to jail. You gotta give him some points for at least you know, running out and seeing what was going on and following and saying, oh, well, what's what's the deal? We know he didn't have a sword or a club. He just came out of bed and was jumping after him to see. But again, you know, someone confronts him and says, hey, weren't you, haven't we seen you with Jesus? I mean, you know, we can see soldiers going, aren't you one of those guys and, you know, being grabbed and, you know, him just saying, oh, no, no, not me, and, you know, just a little tussle and Next thing you know, his sleeping clothes are here, and he's down the street. But he wrestles free. And I have, speaking of wrestling, I have a really interesting illustration. And I'm thinking, "Oh, Pastor Kevin, what wrestling? What? We're going from the garden to wrestling?" Stay with me, because there are there are a couple accounts that are that are have been adapted from the, the soldiers of of Abast. It's called the forty soldiers of a but um, there's there's an iteration that has to do around Nero's time, and there there are there are some some interesting accounts of these guys who were called the emperor's wrestlers. The emperor's wrestlers. And, and there were this elite band of soldiers. and, they, and they, I mean, they were called. We, we have seen accounts of the emperor's or wrestlers. But they, they were picked from the best and the bravest soldiers in the land. And they are also recruited from the great athletes of the Roman amphitheater. Okay? H- hence, the emperor's wrestlers. Now, in the great amphitheater, they, they supported the emperor. So they upheld the, the arms of the emperor against all challengers. And before each contest, and, and this is interesting, before each contest, they would stand before the emperor's throne and they had, they had this, this mantra, this chant. And this is what they would say every time. It said, We the wrestlers, wrestling for thee, O emperor, to win for thee the victory, and from thee the victor's crown. Okay, that was their chant. We the wrestlers, wrestling for thee, O emperor, to win for thee the victory, and from thee the victor's crown. Now, the army was sent uh, to fight in Gaul. And, you know, of course, these emperor's wrestlers were, man, they were the most brave. They, they were the most loyal. They, they, man, they were, they were tough. And again, supposedly they were led by a centurion named Vespasian, not the, you know, a different emperor, but a centurion named Vespasian. Now, the problem was some news got back to Nero, the emperor that a lot of Roman soldiers had, a, had begun accepting the Christian faith. Of course, it didn't sit well with him, because, he, you know, he didn't like Christians. So he sent out this dis- d- decree, and, and it went to all the centurions in the field and all these different places, and, and, and this is what it said. It said, if there be any among your soldiers who cling to the faith of the Christian, they must die. The account goes that uh, Vespasian got the decree in the dead of winter. And they were camped on the shore of a frozen inland lake. And it says it was with a sinking heart that the that centurion read the emperor's message. And so he called all of his soldiers together. And he said, are there any among you who cling to the faith of the Christian? If so, let him step forward. And we, you know, of course he knew, he was hoping in his heart, maybe one or two guys would step up. Problem was, 40 of these emperor wrestlers stepped forward, respectfully saluted, and then just stood at attention. 40 of them. (laughs) And says Vespasian paused, because he really, he wasn't expecting, you know, quite so many in his troops, and especially not like 40 of his elite. You know, like 40 Green Berets. He, he, He didn't need that. And he said... Okay, um, well, until sundown, uh, I'll await your final answer. We're going we're gonna to wait a bit. You, you go think. I'm going to go think, and I'm going to cogitate on this. I'm going to await your answer. Sundown came. He asked the same question. And again, same 40 men, stepped forward, saluted, stood respectfully. One writer says that, that Vespasian pleaded with them long and earnestly to, to renounce their faith, uh, and he didn't prevail upon a single person to, to deny Christ. And so, so finally he closed out this way he says, "Well, the decree of the emperor has to be obeyed, has to be obeyed, but I'm not willing that your comrades should shed your blood. says so, so I order you to march out upon the lake of ice, I'm going to leave you there to the mercy of the elements. So these emperor's wrestlers were, were stripped and then they fell into columns of four, and they marched to the center of the lake of the ice. But as they marched, they broke into their new chant. And it was similar to the one from the arena, but it had a a twist. It said, 40 wrestlers wrestling for thee, O Christ, to win for thee the victory, and from thee the victor's crown. And they just kept this chant up all night on the middle of the lake of ice. 40 wrestlers wrestling for thee, O Christ, to win for thee the victory and from thee the victor's crown. And it says, through the night, Vespasian stood by the campfire and he watched and he listened. He, he could hear this chant continuing, continuing. And, and as, as he waited through the long night, you know, the chant got fainter and fainter and fainter. And as, and as dawn started to draw near, one man who was just overcome by exposure, he crept quietly toward the fire. In the extremity of his suffering, he he had renounced Christ. And then faintly but, but clearly still from the lake came the song thirty-nine wrestlers wrestling for thee, O Christ, to win for thee the victory, and from thee the victor's crown. And it said that the centurion looked at the figure, drawing close to the fire. And we don't, you know, don't have anything else in terms of what he heard or saw or thought, except he tore off his helmet and tore off his garments and and he, and he jumped out onto the ice and he picked up their chant. And he's saying, 40 wrestlers wrestling for thee, O Christ, to win for thee the victory and from thee the victor's crown. And that's a very poignant account of... No compromise. But these types of things, they, I tell you, they, they always beg the question, at least in my mind. What, what would I have done? What would I have done? I mean, when, when confronted with swords or, or clubs or, or prison or torture or certain death, you know, would my faith have held? Or, would fear have caused me to falter? I'm always reminded of and again most of you remember this, but from Columbine and you know that girl Cassie Bernal. And you know that, that wonderful account that simply said she said yes when you know that gunman said, Hey, do you do you believe in God? I mean, knowing that she was staring down the barrel of a gun. It's a great account because she said, yes. Apostle Paul wrote over in Acts 21, 13, he says, I'm not ready, not only to be bound, I'm ready, I'm sorry, I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul said, I'm ready to be bound, I'm ready to die for the name of the Lord Jesus. Jesus. We don't get the idea that that Paul wrestled much with compromise. And we know that he was beaten and abused and outcast and everything else he could have. And so that's why man, I go back to the garden and I go back to the scenario and then, yes, we know, man, the, the disciples, yeah, they were faithful. And once again, I, you know, I think we put our lens on them and, and we, we examine them and say, yeah, they should have stuck. Yes, we know there were guys with clubs and swords and chains and everything else and, and yeah, pretty good chance they were going to get tortured and then killed or whatever. But by golly, they'd been with him for three years. They should have stuck. And I have, I have to kind of step back and say, if I'd been there, what would I have done? Or if I'd been John Mark chasing him and the guy grabbed me, said, hey, weren't you? A... We don't get the idea that he said anything. He just, he just fought free and got out of there. Paul said, I'm ready not only to be bound, but to die for the name of the Lord Jesus. And I tell you, what can be disheartening about American Christianity is that an overwhelming percentage of people who claim Christ aren't even comfortable talking about spiritual things, much less taking a firm stand I mean we as a rule church people that they don't they don't like to talk about religion or bible or god or christ because it makes other people uncomfortable I tell you what, one of the one of the most damaging movements I think that has hit modern christianity has been this idea of of The primacy of lifestyle evangelism. You just live your life and, you know, people will notice there's something different and they'll talk to you about it. Or that silly saying that says, you know, preach the gospel and when necessary use words. (laughs) Hey, I'm sorry, that's stupid. That is stupid. Nowhere in Scripture does it say live your life this way first. And then, if you need to talk to people, no, it says proclaim, preach, tell. And yes, we're called to a life of peculiarness and difference and set apartness and righteousness and holiness. But by golly, our mouths better be doing something. And what is sad is we're, we are we f- are afraid. We are fearful. Whatever context we're in, we're fearful to engage people spiritually. And I I would challenge you on that. Whoever you come in contact with, whether friends or not, whether co-workers or not, family or not, I would challenge you on that. Let Let me ask you this. Now, not everybody is always around, but man, how many people? How many of you have had a conversation with Angelo or Jay or Sean? That was a spiritual conversation, man. I, church, we we've got to be challenged at this. We will have there will be opportunities for us as a church. To preach the gospel to people, we had a service opportunity yesterday helping Casa, and yeah, you know, I'd, it would have been I mean, you know, maybe working in a parking lot or, or, I don't know handing out stuff I don't know what it was. those are opportunities to serve and to preach the gospel. But it doesn't take an event. And I think some, that's something else that the church has bought into. We, we've said, all right, no, we need an event to preach the gospel. We need some sort of program. Or, no, no, you just need, you need vocal cords and a mouth and a tongue. That's all it takes. And you need a little bit of chutzpah, all right? A little bit of confidence, a little bit of, a little bit of faith, a little bit of faith. but that's why I look at something like this. And I do. I think, what would I have done? Or I think about you know, these countries, you know, present and past, where you know, they, they break into their, their Bible study, their prayer meeting. They say, okay, if, if, you, know, if you want to go free and not die, all you've got to do is stop at the door, renounce Christ, and we'll, and we'll step on out. And man, there's a count. After account of people being left behind, and saying, "Not, hey, are you, do you want to announce Christ? Renounce Christ?" And they don't. Or do you want to? I mean, there was one where you know all you had to do was just just you know step on the Bible, just jump on the Bible on your way out, and, and you know disrespect the Bible. Um, and it was this young Asian girl wouldn't do it. I'm not even talking that extreme. I'm just I'm just saying examine your spheres of influence. Examine your or just spheres of contact. And engage people with something that matters. And yes, I want us to live meaningful lives, and I want us to live lives that honor Christ, but by golly, if, if you're not willing to speak it, then what good is it? I had people thank me yesterday. We, uh, we went to McDonald's, and there was a couple sitting there, and they, they asked me a question, and, and you know, we got ready to go, and... Everybody packed up and left, and you know I was still dialoguing with them. But they were they were just asking what was going on in Springfield, you know, what, what there was to do. Um, and so we talked about that a little bit, and actually I directed them out to to Costa. I said, "Well, there's this cool Latin American thing going on," and so I told them where it was. Um, but but we we talked about church and God and, and walking with Christ, and and, and it turns out they they go to a church plant down in Branson that there was a. Plant from Southgate, um, Rock Rockaway or Rock something. Um, anyway, need people, but but here's what's cool. I was leaving. They thanked me. They thanked me for taking time to talk about spiritual things. They say they said you know our, our pastor talks to us about that about you know having conversations, um, and they just they said thanks thanks for taking time to do that. I don't do that every time, all right? That, I don't. I need to do it more, all right? I'll be the first to say, but folks, listen, we, we can't compromise, and I think so often because we are afraid, we're afraid of what people will think or say or do or how to respond or if... Whatever it is, we, man, we're just afraid. And we look at the disciples and we pick on them for being afraid. And I don't know what I would do. I don't know if, what I would do if my life was threatened or if my family's life was threatened. but I know a lot of people wrestle with being confident in their Christianity. It's a, I know a lot of people do. I mean, we, we wrestle with a lot of things. We, and we wrestle with trust, and we wrestle with worry, and we wrestle with, I don't know, patience, and we wrestle with responsibility. We wrestle with a number of things, I know. And maybe with within you know, the elements of your faith, you're great. You're you're confident and you're composed, and you know you're you're compelled to go and to proclaim. But maybe you wrestle more with worry or patience or whatever else. I don't know. But I, I'll say this in, in our in our wrestling. My prayer is that. And I'm going to use, I'm going to use a 70s phrase, but you know, in the 70s, you know, the old buzz said, man, I'm sold out for Jesus. And it was sold out in a good way. Man, you know, I, I've surrendered all. I, I'm giving it my all. I'd love for us to have that mindset and not, and not to sell out our Savior on any level. Because understand... We, compromise and selling out the gospel and selling out Christ, it can happen on a number of levels. And it can be, we know it can be subtle and it can be small. Or it can be, you know, there's guys with swords here ready to kill me. I don't know. But praise God that Jesus set the bar really high. (laughs) that he was steadfast and he was secure and he was confident. And even though everyone else was fleeing around him, he was still faithful. Even though he was betrayed and abandoned and sold out, he was still faithful. And that's all he asks of us. Be faithful. Be faithful. So, church, let's be faithful. Let's be faithful. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you once again lord for for what you show us in your word god your word is an inspiring and it's challenging and it's convicting and it's humbling and god we know that goodness you you are faithful to us. And Lord, even though we stumble every day, God help us to take comfort in your renewed mercies daily. And Lord, to take confidence in the example that you set and the faith that we're given. And Father, help us to be a faithful people. God, help us to be faithful in our roles as husbands and fathers and children and wives and sisters and brothers. Help us to be faithful in our roles as servants. And Lord, help us to be faithful as as the bride to be the city on the hill that can't help but shine. Lord, we thank you. And Father, we praise you and we love you and ask all of it. In Jesus' name, amen.